0: Mountain Vista Baptist Church podcast features the preaching and teaching of Pastor Robert Perry and the guest speakers of Mountain Vista Baptist. The purpose of this podcast is to help believers grow, to edify the saints, and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Please, let's go to the book of Daniel and return to chapter number three tonight. And of course, last week... Uh, we jumped into chapter number three, and uh, we entitled the, the message, Courage in the Fire. And of course, we uh, said that last week, with just the preliminary beginnings of the whole story, is kind of uh, the thought of, uh, of courage in the fire, figurative, figuratively speaking, because they were faced with the fiery trial of whether or not they would uh, remain standing or whether or not they would bow uh, before the... Uh, the the statue that had been erected. And uh, we spoke about that a little bit as well. And uh, they had a choice to make because those who would not bow before uh, the statue when the music began to play, uh, they, of course, were, it was commanded that they would be thrown into the fiery furnace. And uh, and so they had a trial, a fiery trial that they had to face in the decision. Uh, of course, we spoke about that that statue. We said the fact that it come that, that, Chapter number three follows chapter number two in the time that it was written. The fact that uh, it uh, chapter number three has Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in uh, the place of some type of uh, prominence or position, uh, uh, that and of course that happened after Daniel had asked for that. That was at the end of chapter number two. So we understand that the events of chapter number three, chronologically speaking, do follow that of chapter number two. The reason why that's important is because as we get later on into the book, you'll notice that we jump back and forth in time as well, so it's not completely chronological in its writings uh, as it gets on later, but this chapter truly is. It comes uh, after the events that have taken place in chapter number two, and we said more than likely these events of chapter number three take place somewhere around 585 B.C., uh, the constant rebellion of the Jews, those that were the remnant still in Jerusalem. Finally, Nebuchadnezzar had had enough, so he went in, tore down the walls of the city, destroyed the, the, the temple, uh, gathered all the rest of the remnant up, brought them back into Jerusalem, and uh, and as a way of saying, I have defeated the people of the God who gave me that dream and who had gave the interpretation, the Daniel, for me to know that that statue that's spoken of in chapter number two uh, began the beginning of a, a time frame or an age of the Gentiles, of course, beginning with Nebuchadnezzar as the most sovereign king of the world at that time. Their second, the, the next level though was that of of silver and such, and and so that was going to represent another kingdom that would follow after, but it just wouldn't be quite as powerful, but have enough power to overthrow him as the most powerful uh, in the world. And he knew that the interpretation that had been given was that of such that he would have power, and his power supposedly had as 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 he had been told anyways had been given to him by the God of the Hebrew people, the God of the Jewish people, and the God of the Jewish people was the one who was allowing them to have have all this power and such. and But he knew that supposedly there was going to be another uh, kingdom to follow. And so as he goes into Jerusalem and, and just lays it at waste and he, he brings back all of the captives back to Babylon now, in his mind he's thinking, I have just captured all of the people of this God. I have destroyed his temple and I've destroyed his holy city as well. I truly am the most powerful, I have defeated the, this God, and the, the, the arrogance of Nebuchadnezzar no doubt is on display when he makes this statue in chapter number three, because we find that it is not made in the same manner as what he had dreamed about that we read about in chapter number two, because the one in chapter two had different uh, levels of metals or, or, or precious stones and such in it, and as it went down, it decreased in its value. This statue that he created, though, was what? 100% gold, representing him as the almighty sovereign, if you may, and we said that The statue stood about 90 feet tall by about 9 feet wide, and uh, a a, a, a scale of 10 to 1, and that number 10, we said, has a connotation of testimony, and that's what he was saying, as this is my testimony, I'm the most powerful person in the entire world. Of course, we said that we, we saw the confrontation of God's people as they were uh, confronted by the fact that they were supposed to bow, and they were confronted with the dismay of the other Israelites that were being brought into the city after they had been taken from from Jerusalem. They had been demanded to bow down to, they, Nebuchadnezzar demanded that they bow down to this idol. And then we, of course, saw the discipline uh, for insubordination. We also looked at the criticizing of God's people last week and the fact that as soon as they did not uh, bow, the, the other uh, wise men, the other people in, the, in places of prominence went immediately to the king and said, hey, there's these three that didn't bow, and remember your command, and here's the punishment for them, and so what are we going to do? And so there was the, f- the, the courage to stand in the fire, figuratively speaking, because they weren't facing the literal fi- fire yet. But as we get into the end of chapter number three tonight, we're going to find them being thrown into a literal fiery furnace. And so both messages, these last week's and tonight's is called courage in the Fire. But last week we can consider it figuratively speaking. Tonight we could consider it literally speaking. But as we said last week even, Daniel chapter three uh, moves forward another step in the chiasm. And so, uh, Brother Quentin, if you'd give me that next slide there, uh, or maybe two actually, and you'll find here the chiasm. We have the chapter number two dealt with the prophecy concerning the four Gentile empires that dominated Israel and the world. That corresponds, of course, with A prime as you come out, the prophecy concerning the four Gentile empires that dominate Israel and the entire world. Now we're, though, in chapter number 3 in B, Uh, of the uh, chiasm, God delivers Daniel's friends from Gentile persecution corresponding with B prime coming on the way out as Daniel is the one that's facing the persecution. We said this chiasm is just simply a literary structure. It is a way of organizing the writing and as such to show the main points of what was to be accomplished. Chapter number three of Daniel corresponds, as I just said, with point B in the chiasm and in particular uh, with Daniel's three friends that will be caught up in this political track and so uh, trap i'm sorry so let's move further here in the chapter number three tonight uh with king nebuchadnezzar again uh displaying his power and his might and as we close last week we said this and as the king heard about the boys rebellion he becomes enraged and he reacts in a very predictable manner a predictable way And so we will pick up in verse number 13 tonight. Look at Daniel chapter 3 and verse number 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and fury, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, Then they brought these men before the king. Verse number 14, Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do not ye serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Verse number 15, it reads, Now if ye be ready... That at the time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, uh, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the image which I have made. Well, uh, but if ye worship not, ye shall be cast the same hour into the midst of the burning, burning, fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Our Father, we thank you for this evening the opportunity again to hear from your word. I ask now that you give me the word to speak as I deliver it. Help us to hear from it tonight, that we might honor and glorify you through it all and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Notice number one with me tonight, the challenge of God's people. The challenge of God's people we've just read there in chapter 3 and verses 13 through 15 and I notice here a royal fury if you may. It says right there off the bat in verse number 14 that Nebuchadnezzar in his rage and fury commanded to bring these three men the king was angered and, and uh, he, he demands that these three young men stand before his presence. And as they stand before his presence, I'm sure that they were brought to him in a kind of a, probably an unceremoniously, uh, unceremonious type of way. They weren't brought in here with any pomp and circumstance. They were probably roughed up a little bit. I'm sure they weren't being the nicest of folks. They probably didn't come up with their golf cart you know, and say, hey, sit on the back bumper there and we'll pull you up here. We want to make sure that you have it easy. No, these folks, the the guards, the the soldiers probably grabbed these three men and, and pushed and prodded and pulled and all those types of things as they brought them before the king in his fury. The king asks them specifically, if what he hears is true, is it true that what I'm hearing, the fact that you're not bowing, down to my my statue, you're not worshiping my gods, and and you're just kind of rebelling, you're bucking the system. Are these things true? And uh, he decides that there's no reason even to entertain a discussion, because he immediately does he doesn't even give him a chance to answer. He immediately moves on into okay, uh, if, if if it isn't true, then here's what I'm going to give you a chance to do. I'm going to give you a chance to go ahead and bow down right now when the music starts. And and if you bow, everything's fine. Everything's hunky-dory. We don't have to go any further. We'll just dismiss from here and forget this thing ever happened. But if you don't bow, then I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace. Now, I'm here to tell you tonight, as we look at verse number 15, as he gives these demands, he says, if you be ready, that at the time you hear the sound of these the, these instruments and all kinds of music. He says, you fall down and, uh, uh, to the and worship the image which I have made. He says, well, but if you don't, then that same hour I'll cast you in the midst of the fiery furnace, he says. We've seen this royal fury, but let's not forget that there was a real fear that these young men faced. I'm afraid that and the fact that we sit in a church like ours, and this is a story that if you grew up in church, even the junior church teacher and the Sunday school teachers taught. And so you know how the story ends. You know ultimately that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're saved by God, and everything works out just fine, and not even a hair on their head is singed. You know that already. And so for someone who knows the end of the story, it's very easy for us to kind of just look past what they're facing at the time they're facing it. These young men had no idea what the outcome was going to ultimately be. They had faith in God. They believed that God could, and if it was in His will, that He would save them. But they were not positive that that was God's will at the time. They were just willing to to obey God's will no matter the cost. They knew that it was God's will that they bow only and worship Him. They knew that it was God's will that they not bow to this false idol. But they did not know whether or not it was God's will that they stay alive any further than the rest of this day. And so the fact that they had a choice to make, the fact that they had to stand before this king and give an answer, is is a very astonishing, a very uh, important aspect that we need not lose sight of. See, I we can say well I would love to have the that type of faith I'd love to be able to stand for God and, and and I think I would the question really comes down to not whether or not I would stand but whether or not I'm willing to to follow the will of God that I know is the will of God right now above everything else See sometimes we 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 kind of conflate the the thought of well, if God can, then he must have to. And that tr- that's just simply isn't the case. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. But my friend, we, we can get this idea, and, 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 I, and it's just amazing to me how, how important and how uh, the book of Daniel is actually relevant to right now for us today. I know we, we're talking about the fact that it deals with, uh, with how God works even though he allowed his people to be under bondage to a Gentile nation, he's still in control of all things, specifically for the Jewish people of that time. I understand that. But the principles that derive from it for us today, in our day and age, is, is still all, the tr- is all still true today. And that is God is in control no matter what. And here in a couple of weeks, we're going to have an election day. And we hope we're going to find out what the results of that are that night. We might not that night. We might not the next day. We might not even a week after. I don't know what's going to happen with all that. And I'm afraid that uh, that some some of us are so fearful about what the outcome is going to be as if what happens on November 3rd dictates whether or not God remains on His throne. And see, it doesn't matter who wins the election, my friend. God is still in control. And if He allows someone who would be against his, will, his own wills and his own ways and would stand against the things that are found in the word of God, We'd, we might sit there and question why would God allow that, but the only answer that we have to know is this, is God has allowed it for some reason. And so therefore, it is not whether or not when the, or if the time comes that I have to stand for God and face maybe persecution or even death on whether or not I'll do it. The question is, am I willing to stand for what I know is right right now? Because if I'm willing to stand right now and I make the commitment to stand right now, that when that time comes and I'm faced with the consequence of death even, I've already made the choice and it's not a choice any longer. When I was in Arkansas, one of the assistant pastors there, when he was specifically talking about church attendance, he said, you just need to decide that you're never going to decide whether or not you're going to go to church. And what he's saying is it shouldn't even be a choice. You should already have chosen from the get-go that church is important and that you're going to be there when the doors are open. So when it comes to the point of, well, should I go uh, to the amusement park today or should I go to church? It's not even a question. Because you've already made the choice not to decide to do anything else but church when the church doors are open. Can I say that that ought to be the case for every single thing that we know the Word of God has commanded and stated is true for God's will for us today? We don't have to wait until we're faced with a huge dilemma to decide whether or not we'll stand or bow. We choose right now. And then the choice is already made for us when the circumstances get that dire. So we find here, number one, the challenge of God's people. But number two tonight, I want you to notice the courage of God's people as we read in the verse number 16 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, We are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and He will deliver us out of Thine hand, O King. But if not, be it known unto Thee, O King, that we will not serve Thy gods, nor worship the golden image which Thou hast set up. Understanding the situation they faced makes this response of theirs even more admirable. Notice their answer was a remarkable answer in verse number 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter." matter. First, they say this, that they don't even have to stop and ponder. They don't even have to stop and hesitate on what their answer to the king is going to be. They said, we're Jews, we're not worshiping your gods. And that goes back to what we just finished speaking about in the last point in the fact that when we choose beforehand, it's not even a choice when we are faced with the choice in the matter. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, had I believe they had chosen that they were going to bow and worship only at at the feet of their God back when they were in Jerusalem when everything was fine and dandy. Back in Jerusalem when there was no problems. Back in Jerusalem when there was no persecution. Back in Jerusalem when there was no fear of any other uh, country coming in and taking them captive. So that when they were in captivity in a pagan country and they were faced with, this, with the fact of whether or not they would bow and worship before a, 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 a false idol, it wasn't even a choice to be made because they had already so- solidified it. And it was a remarkable answer. My friend, that ought to be the case for Every single one of us. It was a recognizable answer also, as we see in verse number 17. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O King. Furthermore, not only had they said, I, it's not even a question. It, we don't even have to hesitate. We don't even have to wonder about it. We don't even have to say, hold on, time out, let me go pray about it for a little bit. We are, not only did they already know what their answer would be, It's also the fact that their answer is the fact that they recognized that their God had all power and ability and authority, if it be his will, to save them from this punishment. He said, They they said unto Nebuchadnezzar, he can deliver us. He's got the power to do it. And then they add that even if the Lord should choose not to deliver them under these circumstances, it doesn't matter because that doesn't change their choice either. Not even death is reason to turn their back on God's word. See, many, a Bible commentator has remarked on the noble response of these men. They have taken the command of Scripture to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their might, just literally. And they said there's nothing that's going to take it away from us. And they've made obedience to their God their life's aim. That's something to... to, to, uh, Try to emulate in our lives, my friends. Say, I'm going to follow the word of God no matter what. God's glory before the nations was more important than their own security and their very lives. It was more important that God be glorified than whether or not they, they, they breathed another breath that day. That was not only a remarkable answer, a recognizable answer, in the fact that they recognized that God had the power to save, but it was also a reliable answer. Because perhaps more even amazing than anything, more amazing than the fact that they'd already settled the fact that they were going to only bow before Jesus and no one else, even more remarkable than the fact that they had it settled in their heart and in their mind that God was able to save them, more amazingly than that is their unwavering trust in God's sovereignty. Because in the fact that they say in verse number 18, but if not, but if not what? If he not save us, if he not deliver us, Be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. As I said earlier, too often we conflate God's potential to act with God's willingness to act. God is capable of all things, my friend, yes, but self-evidently he only does certain things. Therefore, our resolve to remain obedient in times of testing should not be based on an expectation that God is obligated to respond to our faithfulness according to our desires. See, our, our, our obedience to God's word at the times where we say, where it would be only if he works on our behalf in the way that he, we want him to work, is, it would be some type of quid pro quo type of uh, a relationship it would be superficial obedience at best it'd be equivalent to your child going and cleaning their room only because they get an allowance to do so that's not obedience that's employment and my friend if we only obey God's word when we are sure that he's going to work it out for what we think to be best we've got our our whole priorities out of whack we've got our minds all messed up and here these three young men said uh, we believe God we've settled it in our hearts we don't even have to decide whether or not we're gonna stand for God on God's Word we've already settled that that's something we've already chosen that's a that's a non-negotiable not not that's non-negotiable but even further than that they said even though we will not bow before you we believe God will save us even further than that though they said Even though we know He can, and if He desires, He will, if He chooses not to, He's still in control, and we serve Him anyway. And my friend, we find the courage of God's people on display here. The true test of whether our hearts are obedient is whether we will serve the Lord even if His will is to see us suffer in that obedience. My friend, remember, God's own Son suffered far more than we could even imagine. He suffered far greater than we ever will in our lifetime. And He was, is the Son of God. He's perfect. He did nothing to deserve it. We're all sinners by nature. We deserve the wrong. We deserve the evil. But He didn't deserve any of it because He was perfect. But yet he still suffered. That's why scripture tells us that the servant is not going to be better or higher than his master. If Jesus suffered, we will also suffer. But we cannot get this mindset that we ought to escape it. Because we're always trying to follow the will of the Lord. Sometimes God's will will include our suffering. It in- God's will included the suffering of Christ. God's, God's will isn't always comfortable, but it is always perfect. Number three tonight, notice the confidence of God's people. We've seen the, the, uh, the challenge to God, of God's people, the courage of God's people. Number three tonight, notice the confidence of God's people. Read with me in verses 19 through the end of the chapter. Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury. We'll, we'll, we'll pause along the way. We'll just read through verse number 23 right now. Well, then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury. And the form of his uh, visage was uh, changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore, he spake and and commanded that they should uh, heat the furnace one seven times more than it was wont to be heated. And he commanded the uh, the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Uh, Then these men were bound in their coats and their hosen and their hats and their other garments and were cast in the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's commandment was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire slew those men that took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. The king's rage, of course, transfers into the temperature of the fire, if you may. We read there in verse number 13 that it was full of rage and fury that Nebuchadnezzar began to command these three men to stand before him. And now it's his fury and rage that goes, (laughs) I'm slapping things here, his fury and rage that goes, uh, goes out and says, turn this oven up hot. And it says there that he, he commanded that it be turned up seven times. I believe he's speaking of the fact that he was turning it up to its highest point. The word seven in scripture means often points to completion, uh, and so I, 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 I would assume that's where he's he's going there. I I, I think he's so angry that if the if the uh, if the furnace could have went ten times, he probably would have said that. If it could have gone twenty times, he probably would have said that. But the seven times is saying, "I want to turn up all the way as hot as it can be." The furnace itself was probably made out of an adobe structure, and I'm going to switch over to the next one here. There, uh, Quentin, I think I got it there. And here's some artist rendering, if you may, and it would have been made out of an adobe structure several stories tall, more, some of them at least, lined with natural stones that could withstand the heat. Uh, the top of the structure would have been open to be able to I- exhaust the fumes. And moving down the structure, you would maybe find various openings where they would have been able to put in uh, for the bricks to be made and such. At the bottom would have been an opening also uh, to be able to stoke the fire and to bring stuff in or maybe to scrape it out and clean it out after everything was said and done. And so just imagine with me, what is taking place here? We find their rendering as we read there in verses nineteen through twenty-three. The king's so angry that they won't bow. He tells them to be bound up. He tell he, it's so quick that he doesn't. He, he just leaves them clothed. Now one, that's interesting to note because we're going to get to that later on. It's important at the end of the chapter as well in the fact that they were thrown in fully clothed. After all, when a king in those days or a, someone in charge of those days would want to to. To show himself as powerful as he could, one way to do that would be to shame the other. Think of how Jesus was crucified. Now, I know in the movies, they, he has a little bit of clothing on and such, but literally, he would have been crucified completely naked because part of the punishment was the shame of hanging there in front of everyone naked. This would have been the case even in, those, in, the, in the Babylonian days as well. But he's so angry, he's so hasty in it, he says, just bind him up and throw him in f- fully clothed as well. And so... Of course, the uh, furnace would have had some type of a a walkway for the workers to get up to, as it's it's pictured here. Uh, Down towards the bottom would have been like an opening, like I said, so that they could get in there and clean things out. And so here's what is taking place. He gets his strongest, mightiest of men to come and grab them. They tie them up, they bind them up, and I can see them just pushing them ahead of time, climbing up ever so higher, whether it was maybe a ramp like this or maybe it was some stairs like this, but whatever the case was, pushing them up, thrusting them to go higher and higher and higher until the point where they were going to throw them in. Nebuchadnezzar probably uh, puts himself somewhere down at the bottom near the opening that would have been able to, uh, to be able to see into and see what is taking place. And so these men take them up and they throw them into the, into the opening there. After they've thrown them into the opening, of course, these, three, these men, these strong men, these soldiers had to get back down. So here they go climbing back down the stairs or coming down the ramp and the furnace is so hot when these men get thrown in there the fires kind of belch out of the holes that would have been in the side to where they could have put in the, uh, the, the plaster and the molds and such to make the bricks and such and it comes out of those exhaust pipes or those holes there and just engulfs these men and completely burns them up. We find here that And it's ironic that Nebuchadnezzar's rage blinded the king into doing something actually pretty foolish. For if his desire was to inflict the most amount of suffering on these three men as possible, he would have commanded the furnace to be turned down in temperature and not up so that they would have to stay in there and that the flames wouldn't immediately devour them, but that they would suffer a while. Maybe be thrown into a part where they they wouldn't be right in the midst of the flames, that they would suffer asphyxiation from the smoke inhalation. Maybe that it was just hot enough to where it started to melt the skin, but not immediately consume them. But he was so furious, he was so so much enraged that he says, Turn it all the way up. And it even does, that was so foolish in the fact that he also killed his own men in doing so. Now, one thing to note on this is the fact that, remember, that we said about this chiasm. That point B represents God delivers Daniel's friends from Gentile persecution. We said that uh, that the chiasm works in such a way to help Israel to make sense of God's seemingly contradictory plan for Israel. It seemed like it would be contradictory. That, uh, that God would allow them to go through this and still be th- his, their God and they be his people. And uh, that he was still in control. But this whole, these whole event, all these events are pointing to the fact that God is still in control and he's still on the children of Israel's side. And so when a Jewish person would read this, how God worked, they would remember the command that God gave to Abraham. And what did God t- say to Abraham? I'll make of you a great nation. And everyone who blesses you, I'll bless. But everyone who curses you, I'll what? Curse. So the fact that these men threw these three men into the fire and then they found their death in the fire, when the children of Israel would read later on how God worked in such a way, they're like, God's true. This is the fruition of His prophecy or His promise that those who curse Israel will be cursed. I'm not here to say that every single bad thing that happens against the Jewish person, God has some type of corresponding negative in their life. But the truth is that God's people are His people, and He will bless those that bless them and curse them that curse them. This is the central message of the chapter, that it signified the fact that God is still on His throne keeping His covenants. The lives of these three three men are finding their purpose in this testimony. In a sense, we can say that the Lord has placed these men in this situation so that by their testimony, They can give meaning to Israel's seeming defeat. I mean, here it is at this time. Many of those that had just been brought into the city of Babylon from Jerusalem, that last remaining part of the remnant that had been left in Jerusalem, are probably thinking, this is it. This is the ending of us. And here's God's proving again that He's still in control. They could find encouragement in God's words. We find the rendering and the fact that they were thrown into the into the fire, but notice the redemption in verses 23 through 25. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound in the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astonished and rose up in haste and spake and said unto his counselors, did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said unto the king, O true, true, O king, verse number 25. He answered and said, hello, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. The lowermost level of these furnaces featured a large opening, many a times tall enough for a man to walk through, as we said earlier. This would allow them the opportunity to stoke the fires, the opportunity to clean it out. And this would have been a perfect spot for Nebuchadnezzar to sit and watch what he thought was going to be his great victory take place. But as he's peeking and peering through this opening, he sees these men who were once bound up when they were thrown in, now unbound, walking about with no, no harm to them. He says, wait a minute, guys. He calls all of his wives men together. Because after all, here's his display of power. I'm sure there was a quite large group that he had gathered together there because he wants everyone to learn this lesson as well. Don't cross me because I will have you killed because I'm the most powerful man. After all, I destroyed the God of these Hebrews by destroying his temple and his city. That's why I erected this statue. And uh, this is what happens to those who rebel. So he gathers all these people together to see his display of power. And all of a sudden, when he looks in, it's not happening the way he thought it was going to. He says, wait a minute, guys, come here. Didn't, didn't Didn't we throw these men in there bound up? Are they walking around? I mean, they should, have already dis, they should have been disintegrated by now. I mean, there should, there should be nothing left of them. Maybe a few pieces of bone laying in a heap there. But are these guys walking around? And they sure, sure enough, they're... And he said, Did, didn't we only just throw three of them in there? And they said, well, yeah, there was only three. He says, look, there's four walking around. And in words more true than he could probably ever understand, he said, in the fourth is like unto the Son of God, the angel of God, Jesus Christ himself in the midst of that fire. Many a times when you read the term angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it is speaking of a pre-incarnation appearance of Jesus Christ, a Christophany if you wanted to call it that. But we find here that the fact of the matter that the, the, the power that is on display and just the, the information that is given, the fact that Nebuchadnezzar himself said, it's like unto the Son of God. It shows us that Jesus Christ showed up. Isn't it an amazing thing to think about that Jesus Christ showed up in their time of greatest need? We have not a high priest that hasn't been touched by the feeling of our infirmities, who was all like ways tempted as we are, yet without sin, and he's the one we can come boldly to the throne of grace. And he's the one who said that, hey, I must needs go because if I don't, then I can't send the one that's even greater than I, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. And every single one of us who know Christ as our Savior has the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our, ho- in our lives right now. My friend, Jesus, uh, the, the, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is with us every single day. We don't have to wait for him to show up because he's already there. He appears in the fire to save these men. He didn't just save them from the flames of the fire, from the heat of the fire. He, t- he saved them from the toxic fumes. He saved them from the lack of oxygen. He saved them from the burns. He saved them from, the, uh, from the, uh, even the smell of what was it. They come out of the fire unscathed. They were even, they were even saved from the fall. It says that they th- were thrown in. So if it was a couple stories high and if they did go up to the top of the thing, then more than likely it was a pretty decent fall. That He saved them from the fall as well. My friend, when the Lord saves, He truly saves. Amen. Notice their resolve in verses 26 and 27. Then Nebuchadnezzar. Came near to the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spake and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come forth and come hither. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came forth in the midst of, of the midst of the fire, and the princes and governors and captains and kings, counselors, they being gathered together, saw these men upon whose bodies the fire had no power, nor was an hair of their head singed, neither were their coats changed, nor the smell of fire had passed on them. It's remarkable to me that when the Lord saved that they remained in the fire until the king called them out. I mean, assumedly, they would have been able to just walk right on out. They were unbound. There was nothing keeping them in there. God had given them supernatural, the supernatural his supernatural presence to keep them safe and from being burnt. They could have walked right out from, from the opening. But they remained right in the midst of the fire until the king called them out, as if to say, all right, king, uh, show us your power. Finally, the king calls them out, and, he, and he's astonished at what's going on. It, it must have been that the Lord wanted to make a point to the king. More than just simply saving the men, he wants the king to be convinced that he's protecting them, that he's in control. And guess what? It worked. Quite a crowd had assembled to see this moment. We, are, we spoke about that already. And we find that not even the odor from the fires is found upon them, as we read there in verse number 27. This is where the clothing becomes an important element of the story. As I said earlier, we would have normally expected the condemned men to lose their clothing prior to the execution, but that wasn't the case. These men were allowed to keep their clothing, presumably because of the king's anger that propelled the soldiers to act with extreme haste. God even preserved their clothing from the flames. He didn't preserve the, ba- the binding, the ropes or whatever. That, those fell off, but he preserved their clothing. God ensured these men would emerge from the furnace with both their lives and their dignity intact. See, the, the king had attempted to kill them and do so in a way that may, would make an example out of them, but in the process... God has set the example. He has consumed his adversaries, vindicated his faithful, restored their dignity while while vacating the king's orders. The king shows that he's received the lesson by declaring these three are servants of the Most High God, a declaration that would be repeated about seven times throughout this book. The Jew in captivity To the Jews in captivity, this account would have been a source of real encouragement. For after all, the dream of chapter number two showed that Israel would be under the dominion of Gentile rule for quite a while. But this story shows that God is still on their side in the midst of it all. Israel cannot defeat these Gentile powers since God has allowed them to have the power that they have, but neither can Gentile authorities defeat their God. And therefore, God is always on His throne. These three men walking up the stairs to their death can be said to represent all believers. Don't we carry the burden of our sin with us? Everywhere we go, all that we possess, we are bound by that sin, declared guilty and sentenced to death and eternal fire that would never die. But as we fall, because that's all we can do, is fall We fall with faith in Jesus Christ. It saves us from destruction. And Jesus himself enters the furnace on our behalf to save us from judgment. Notice lastly with me the king's response in verses 28 through 30. Then Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, and that trusted in him and have charged the king's word. I'm sorry, changed the king's word. And yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I make a decree that every people Nation and language which spake anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their their houses shall be made a dunghill, because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort than the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Isn't it interesting how quickly the king goes from believing in God to not believing in God to believing in Him again? At the end of chapter number two, the king said, wow, Daniel's God is almighty. Because of it, I'm going to promote Daniel. And Daniel said, well, why promote me? Will you promote these other three also? He said, sure, why not? If for somebody like you and who has a God so powerful, I'll do anything. Then one chapter later, he's declaring himself to be God. And then by the end of the chapter, he's saying there is no greater God than the God that these three men serve. He made a declaration that there would not be anything spoken against. Here's the interesting thing about it. The fact that uh, he said that God changed his decree. He ultimately had to go back and say, okay, that decree that I said that once the music plays, everybody has to bow down to the golden image, that's out the window. This is important in the fact that he had the power to do so. Because later on in the book, we find when the Medes and the Persians are in control, they don't have that power because any, king, any, any uh, rule made by the king, of the king of the Medes and the Persians, and the next king couldn't change that. But he could because he was the all so- he was all-powerful sovereign at the time. And so he completely, reverse, completely reverses his order and takes away the fact. Because or else next time the music started playing, guess what? We're all in the same situation again. But he completely changes it because he said God has changed it. And he elaborates on that command to say that no one will say anything about the God, the God of Israel. He removes any threat against the, uh, them arising uh, uh, out of their worship. Furthermore, he sets the stage for future generations of Jews to exist alongside Babylon and later the Medio persians without any fear. He's, uh, as we said last week, It was during this time that they began their their worship in the synagogues and such, and many things about modern-day Judaism we could say was birthed in this time. They will remain in captivity for some time longer, yes, and we're going to learn more and more about that as we go along, but they will no longer see their worship of the true God inhibited. They will have the freedom to worship God freely. And here again is a strong encouragement for the Jew that is found in exile. The Lord may have placed them in very difficult circumstances, but He expects them to continue in their faithful obedience to His commands, even while in exile, and now He has made sure that they have the ability to do that with being, without any impediment. Can I say this, this evening that our God has been very, very good to each and every one of us as well. We have the freedom of worship right now. And sadly, we look across this country and we see people just take it for granted. It, it, they worship when it's convenient. Let it not be that God throws us into the midst of some type of great persecution like the, cho- the children of Israel before it wakes us up, before, a, before we get our mind and in, in our heart to where it ought to be in, on God solely. We find these young men, they had the courage to stand. They were confronted with the need to do so. And when they did, when they after having the courage to stand, they had the confidence that God was going to work one way or the other. They weren't saying, we, we are obeying because we know God's going to work. He said, we're obeying regardless of whether God works on our behalf. That ought to be the prayer. That ought to be the heart of every believer. The ending of this story serves as another picture of how the end of the age of the Gentiles will proceed as well. In a future day, Israel will find itself subjected to a fiery trial from a single world ruler. In that trial, the nation will will seem to have its end. The temptation to, uh, to turn against the Lord, taking the mark of the beast, will be great, for it will seem like the only way to survive. But in the last moment, the Lord will appear to save Israel from the trial and preserve them against their enemy. And the result will be Israel left unharmed once again. And their enemies will acknowledge the Lord's superiority. As Paul says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. We're going to continue to look into these parallels, not only to what is taking place there in Daniel's times and to how it relates to us today and parallels to what will take place in future days is where we're going to continue that in the weeks ahead as we continue to move further into these chapters through the book of Daniel. But I hope that we take away from this tonight a, 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 a stronger resolve to stand on the truths that are found in this word, come what may. If God says it's right, my friend, it's right. If God says it's wrong, it's wrong. We, if you turn on the news, turn on, look at any newspaper clippings, if, you, if you've been watching any of these things that are going on with the, with the, uh, the hearings concerning the next possible Supreme Court justice, uh, any of these things, you're going to find people and you're going to find ideologies that are completely against this word. Amen. Because someone stands for the fact that, that a human being, life begins at conception, they're mocked and ridiculed. Because someone stands and says, you know what, I just believe that God has created man and woman, male and female, He created he them, and He's created for the marriage between, be, between one man and one woman, for them to believe that way, they get ridiculed. They call it a bigot. And, and everybody wants to con- change what's, what is acceptable in society today. But my friend, the only thing that is acceptable is what God's word says is acceptable. And we've got to say that is what we believe no matter what. Because if we don't settle this now when we aren't faced with trials and temptations, it's going to be a whole lot harder, if not impossible, to stand for it when we're faced with death. God forbid that any of us have to come to that day. I pray that we have all grown old or that he's called us home already before any of that happens to any of us. But should it happen, my friend, we should not even have to pause for a moment to decide what our answer is going to be. We ought to be like these three young men who say, I don't, I don't, even, have to, I don't even have to wait. We don't have to give you an answer. You know what it is. We're going to stand with God. And to see how God worked in their life ought to give us comfort. But to see their resolve to whether or not God worked on their behalf or if they would have died ought to give us resolve as well. To say, you know what? I know God's in control no matter what. And if it means that I must lose my life, for standing for Him, then that's His will. That is what he, that he would desire for me. For if He allowed His Son to suffer, should we not also face suffering in times as well? And we must have the courage. Courage in the fire. Courage in the fire figuratively when your co-worker comes along and kind of gives you some hard times for your biblical stance and the way you believe. Encouraging the fire literally if you're faced with having to choose whether or not you're going to stand for God or be fired. Whether or not you're going to stand for God or face literal persecution. We ought to have courage in the fire. Our Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for your word and we thank you for the example of these three men that had the courage to stand in the midst of all that takes place. God, now I ask that you would uh, help us to uh, commit our lives to you in such a way that we would be able to see you work, that we would be able to trust and believe that you're in control, come what may. And Lord, help us now as we continue on in our lives, that it be honoring and glorifying to you in every sense of the word. And Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you have a prayer request that has not yet been turned in, hold it up high, and Brother Matchett will collect it as he's making his way up here. And I'm looking here on Facebook real quick. I don't see any uh, requests there. Let me switch over to YouTube and see if there's anybody that's dropped anything in the chat section there as far as a prayer request also. And... not seeing anything there either, so let me just uh, give these that are been turned in, have been turned in tonight, and um, and uh, these, we're just jotting them down, and we'll go to the Lord in prayer tonight. Miss Joey's asking prayer for a pastor, is that Leal, is that right? Leo. Okay, Leo? Leal. Okay, Leal, L-E-A-L, all right, uh, he had a stroke, um, also pray for the members of his family, uh, he has 25 members of his family that has COVID, Wow. And uh, so be in prayer for his family, be in prayer for Pastor Liel also uh, for that stroke. Praising the Lord tonight, though Miss Joey is praising the Lord, uh, she was able to talk with her brother Paul. Um, she get, spoke with him about the uh, about the gospel, but gave him the plan of salvation, and uh, he was able to give her a testimony of a time where he had trusted Christ as his Savior, and that was a, a area of concern in the past for them. And so, praising the Lord that they know for sure he's saved. Um, Miss Juanita is asking prayer tonight. Uh, she's having some issues with her hands, and so be in prayer for those, and uh, that the Lord would give the answers there and some and some uh, healing as well. Miss Kathleen is asking prayer for Miss Tana. Uh, she's under the weather. It's so a prayer for Miss Tana and that she might be uh, able to uh, get back to resuming her normal activity soon. Brother David Jones is asking prayer for the Gonzalez family for an unspoken request. And uh, so keep them in your prayer. Of course, an unspoken is something that's personal and uh, maybe a little too personal to share publicly. But our Lord knows exactly what it is, of course. And uh, so if you'll just remember the Gonzalez family in prayer uh, as you go to the Lord tonight. Uh, Ed Richards Jr. is asking prayer for his cousin, Mark Cleland. Uh, He lives in Tucson. He's having surgery tomorrow for a tumor above his heart. Uh, It was discovered during a recent... uh, uh, COVID hospitalization actually. And uh, so be in prayer for his cousin Mark Cleland, C L E L L A N D, and uh, for that surgery tomorrow. For David Casey's asking prayer. Uh, he has more appointments and tests for his GI problems and the issues that he's experiencing there. So be in prayer for him, for the doctors to be able to find answers as well. And be in prayer for his college classes also and that everything will go smoothly there. I hope that you remember those who are taking classes as also, uh, whether it be online or in person, all those types of things, as they continue to try to further their education and uh, allow the Lord to work in those types of ways in their lives as well, and so remember them. That's all the requests that we have tonight, so why don't you find yourself a prayer partner this evening. Go to the Lord in prayer, and you can pray for as long or for as little as you'd like. Just remember, as you are dismissing tonight, that there are others still probably praying and as you're out there fellowshipping as well, please remember them in prayer also. Or remember not to disturb them as they are in prayer tonight also. All right. So let's pray and ask the Lord's blessings this evening.